Liebe. Hey everyone, welcome to Desolation Radio. But you're not Dan. <gasps> I'm not. Yeah, what's happened to Dan? Where's he gone? He is, uh, he's left the pod. <laughs> so I did mention last week that he was um, doing saxophone lessons and they've they've really kind of taken off and he's uh, trying to make a living now busking on the streets of Cardiff a la Toy Mike Trev. So he's no longer doing the podcast. So It's a beautiful instrument. It was sensual, yeah, and and he's really good at playing the saxophone. Yeah. So, uh, yep, Polly, as we did mention before, is has joined us officially. So this is her first episode hosting. Yeah. Hello, so, everyone. Uh, so without further ado, let's jump into Wales this week and like talk about all the terrible stuff that's happened mm-hmm. in, in Wales, not just to us. Three stories this week. So we're going to kick off with Cardiff's homelessness problem grows as thousands ask for help. So the guys have talked about homelessness a lot kind of over the last few apps, but new statistics just kind of come out. And there's this incredible report. So it reads, thousands of people in Cardiff are asking for help as they're threatened with homelessness, new figures have revealed. Cardiff Council received 3,987 applications for help with homelessness in 2017-18, an increase of 68% from just two years ago. So that's a rise of over two-thirds we're looking at. During those 12 months, 1,976 households were identified as homeless, with breakdown of support from family or friends, and lack of secure accommodation available, the main reasons why. If if only Cardiff Council were building loads of, uh, you know, big towers that could be occupied. I know. Yeah. It'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah. But they, well, they are, Cardiff Council are reviewing the homeless situation and will, apparently they're going to report back later this year because obviously it's not an urgent thing. No. You can just put it off for a few months. Well, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes over winter and if the numbers <laughs> thin out. And then, you yeah. know, if they're still a bit too high, uh, the article says that Hugh Thomas will personally go around beating them to death with mm-hmm. a shovel and then bury them in um, yeah. cates. Well, Cardiff Council's response of, has been that, well, they've said that welfare reform and private landlords leaving the property market are two of the big reasons why the problem is so bad. I thought so, they were best friends with uh, property developers, though, weren't they? Yeah, well, yeah, you, you do hear. It's almost you as if like it was a tenuous friendship <laughs> Yeah, where they just took their money and went. Mm-hmm. It's just like welfare reform. Okay, Wales has the highest dependency on welfare in Britain. Welfare isn't a devolved issue. Why? Because Labour haven't pushed for it to be a devolved issue. It's again, it's just virtue signalling over this. I mean, it's just a roundabout way of how the Welsh government operate, isn't it? Yeah. Is you know, you get um, given the options to take responsibility, but yeah. then that would mean taking responsibility. So yeah. you just palm it off and be like, "Well, it's not up to us. Mm-hmm. It's a national issue." It's the same with well, they talk about private landlords are leaving the property market. That's making it worse. Also, obviously, the solution would be build social housing. Yeah. I just think that would be the very obvious solution to this problem. It's not going to happen, but, you know, we, we can uh, we can dream. But, yeah, I mean, I've got this article that I've uh, got in front of me. There's a picture of a kind of a village of tents that's just popped up in the last week or so in Cardiff. One of them isn't even a tent. It's just basically a shack built from, you know, twigs, bits of foil, bits of scrap wood. It's not a magpie, is it? Magpie set up residence yeah, in Cardiff Yeah, yeah, it could be, could be. I did have this plan, actually, in, in my mind of minds, that you get all the homeless people in Cardiff to set up camp, like, just next to Cardiff Council offices and see how quickly, mm. you know... First of all, I mean, it would be a PR nightmare for Cardiff Council, yeah. who I think first reaction would be try and just, you know, 
come out with flamethrowers. <laughs> but yeah, you know, the, yeah, and there's like, oh, am I actually weaponizing the homeless then for like my own political means? I was like, yeah, yeah I suppose. But um, it, sometimes, yeah, in in London, I think years and years and years ago. Like a lot of homeless people came together and built like a kind of mini city within London out yeah, of cardboard. They did. Yeah, yeah, no. I think that was was that part of um kind of not momentum. What's the ones with the weird masks? Oh, was it not anonymous? Anonymous? Yeah. The big like occupy, occupy. That was it. Yeah, they kind of got involved in that. Didn't work, like no. But you could see how it could. It all yeah. blew away. They just the infrastructure was wasn't sound. <laughs> no. Sort it out, guys. Yeah, it didn't turn out that having a degree in like creative art went too yeah. far. <laughs> but yeah, and then the article carries on. So Jane Thomas, the council's assistant director of housing and communities, said some people have been evicted 30 times from hostels. So obviously hostels aren't an option either, you know. Anyone could tell you that. Yeah, and then Cardiff Council, they go on and on. They basically said that, you know, we need to get people to engage with drug and alcohol misuse programs. You go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. A lot of homeless people dealing with those issues. But at the same time, they the statistics kind of show that about half of all homeless people in Cardiff have substance misuse issues. So what about the other half? You know, what about young people who've been kicked out of home, who've, you know, faced domestic violence and have had to escape, you know? I mean, they, they point out in the statistics that loads of these kind of homeless people at the moment were previously being housed by National Asylum Support Services, which is a government branch. So you know, these are extremely vulnerable people that have been failed by a government branch that are then not being picked up by their own government or you know any kind of other branch. So it's just, it is incompetence. And also I think what people kind of leave behind is just a genuine lack of care. They just genuinely don't give a shit about the homeless. No, no, they, no use to pretend yeah, really. They, is they don't have a fixed, you know, accommodation, so you can't, they can't register to vote. And people in the street don't particularly care, so it's not a vote swinger. The article goes on, so but the council is concerned that up to thirty five percent of these rust sleepers have no local connection to Cardiff. Because that's what you want to be focusing on. Um, we we look after our own. We, we really rough do. sleepers as well. That sounds like yeah. a kind of middle class weekend sport, it does, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Like yeah. tough mudding or something. There was a quote from council spokesperson that says, "Every homeless person or rough sleeper in Cardiff, not from the city, will be offered help to reconnect with their local area." That's a lovely phrase. Mm. Offered help to reconnect send, send <laughs> with back. their local area, yeah. which is basically well, Cardiff's kind of uh, track record has shown that means just sending police in to move them on out of the city. Doesn't mean reconnecting people, it just means moving them out of our area so we don't have to, you know, put provisions in place for them. Um, so they don't dampen the kind of the scenery every yeah. every big weekend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it just gets worse, really. And it's showing the attitude of these politicians. So Sarah McGill, the council's director of People and Communities, said some people affected by homelessness or rough sleeping are deciding they don't want help. She goes on, there's very little the services can do other than to keep trying and offering the support and keeping the door open. So that's the attitude, is that people choose to be poor, people choose to be homeless, people choose to not have a roof over their head. I mean, it's incredible. It's the most kind of, most archaic kind of starting point for any kind of discourse on homelessness you can have. It's proper like um, neoliberal, you know, yeah. new labour type view of... Uh... The idea that these people don't have autonomy. If they had autonomy, they would have used that to... They all got jobs cleaning people's houses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, living the home life. Like. But, I mean, I've been doing a bit of reading around this, um, and it's not just isolated to Cardiff, you know, it's across Wales. Bailiff Morgan Council has recently been branding people applying for help intentionally homeless. 
So I've got the statistic here. I mean, it blew my mind. It shouldn't be as shocking as it is. But between 2016 and 2017, 880 families or individuals applied for help from the council. The council only accepted that 129 of those were in the category of intentionally, no, unintentionally homeless. So it said that basically the majority of people who are homeless applying for them for help they, they intended to become homeless. Mm. No, no one intends to become a homeless. They, they I mean, sat down, they gone yeah. through, <laughs> they gone through all their money, yeah, and then just planned like, oh, tell me what, two three weeks, yeah, that could be us. It's just it's kind of like dehumanizing of homeless people as you know this kind of other, isn't it? Because it's not it's not even so much about them being on the street, being visible. Well, that plays into it. It's their status as homeless people. Like the the royal wedding's a really good context for this. So you had hundreds of people sleeping on the streets of Windsor, but they were wearing Union Jacks and they were waving their flags. So they're not homeless. They're just you know they're just there. Patriots. They're loyal patriots. But, but you know homeless people they were moved on. So it's just this just kind of obsession with talking about people's choices and kind of rational choice. It's just so much bollocks. And uh, yeah, it should make you very angry. But um, on a lighter note, the article finishes with a quote from this Lib Dem councillor called Joe Carter down in Cardiff. And his grand statement is, Welsh Liberal Democrats believe that housing and shelter is a basic right, so we need to support people off the streets. Powerful message. Yeah, that is. (laughs) I mean, uh, they believe that housing and shelter is a basic right. Like, the UN believed that too in, like, 1948 Mm. when they ratified the Declaration of Human Rights. It's not statement. Lib Dems catching up. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, 60, 70 years on. If only there was a kind of, you know, independent, liberal Twitter <laughs> Twitter page that could unite all of us. I know, if only. Yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. But yeah, it's, I mean, the fact that he thinks it's statement worthy of saying that Lib Dems believe mm. that shelter is a human right. <laughs> Actually, guys, maybe people shouldn't uh, like die. Like to death on yeah. the streets. I mean, maybe that's a bad thing. We just, we just, Putting it out there, Lib Dems. Yeah, yeah. Give us a, give us a think, you know. And <laughs> yeah. if you don't agree, we'll change our policy. Yeah, that's the thing. Also trying to put that party political stamp on this issue. I mean, uh, yeah, the fact that he finds it worth pointing out that shelter is something that people should have just shows how basically non-progressive Cardiff politics is. So that's a cheery story. Yeah. Kind of the lighter side of news this week is, uh, I chose this because it made me laugh when I read it, Men need to understand feminism to tackle inequality, says Cadwyn Jones. So Cadwyn has done a big stint. He's gone on Radio 4 Women's Hour and he said that... He said, listen here, bitches. <laughs> listen here, you sluts. <laughs> he said that men have to understand feminism if you know the government wants to tackle gender inequality. Um, he said that the Welsh government's commissioned research to see what it needs to do to become a quote-unquote feminist government. What we've said we want is a truly feminist government. We now have to live after that, says Carolyn. He finished off with this amazing quote that was along the lines of, well, no, exactly it was, feminism being seen as by and for women. You know, we need to avoid that. You know, I get the sentiment of that, but feminism is by and for <laughs> women. Like, yeah, obviously, you know, it, it helps men. It's feminists are men's best friend. You know, all the issues that men face, you know, high suicide rate, you know, deaths in the workplace are caused by 
patriarchy. Feminism is the solution to patriarchy. So yes, feminism helps men, but it shouldn't have to before it's deemed worthy of any attention. We're getting to Neil McAvoy territory there, we, really. We are a little bit. Listen, I am I'm supportive of feminism, but <laughs> what about men? What about men? He literally said that in the uh, chamber this last week, so it's great. Politics is just great. He, uh, recently as well, he set up his own cult, doesn't he? He has. He set his own cult. Was it Daniel Nashley? Uh, yeah, so he <laughs> spiked some Kool-Aid, passed it around. <laughs> yeah, he invited the gals down. Yeah. They had a great time. He said, listen here, girls. <laughs> I appreciate your feminism, yeah. but needs more men. Yeah. Drink up. And they all entered Valhalla together. Yeah. But but Cadwin has a plan, everyone. He's got a plan. So Cadwin has pointed out that 41% of senior civil servants are women. So he said that's better, but it's still not good enough, and it has to improve in the future. Um, so yeah, obviously about half of civil servants should be women, but that's not really the point. You know, if you're dealing with a patriarchal society, which Welsh society is as part of the UK, you have to make structural changes, you know, not just increasing the number of women working on the factory floor. You know, that's a bottom-up approach that doesn't really work. You have to take a structural kind of standing. And, you know, it's just going back to tokenism. Feminists themselves get called tokenistic a lot for wanting women in power, but these kind of liberal, middle of the middle of centre kind of feminists like Cadwin, if you can call them that, his solution is just well, once we've got some kind of women's faces out there, you know that'll be enough, and it's it's just very hollow, basically. You know the entire stint he did on this Women's Hour chat, it was just completely non-committal. He talked about shared parental leave, where my kind of ears pricked up a bit. What he said about shared parental leave was, is that it was where we have to go in the future. That was the quote. A, f- a future, I guess, now he's not going to really be part of. Well, so, yeah. yeah, the key phrase there is in the future. Yeah. It's a great Labour phrase, actually. You just put it off. It's there on the horizon. Yeah. All and these wonderful he, things waiting for us. As, as he looks to the horizon with his weird, like, ape smile, <laughs> and he just he just bares his teeth. Like he's, like, slightly annoyed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Every picture I've like ever seen of him, of him smiling, is just, just like... He's in pain, isn't he? Yeah, he's just trying to get some happiness out, but it won't... Yeah. I mean, the whole thing, there's been no set feminist goals, no ambitions. It would be so, so simple for the government to set out an intent of establishing shared parental leave, even just saying it's something we're going to do, even if you don't have the details worked out yet, because it's obvious. It's, you know, it's increasingly popular in the West... I mean, I just don't buy into the whole intent of it, to be honest. You know, it is a pre-R stunt. He's been leader of a Labour government, which for years has put up no fight against austerity, which has basically decimated women's shelters, destroyed the NHS, and subsequently women's health. And we've had Oxfam stepping in down in Cardiff offering skill sessions to women of colour, because there's just no government provision. You know, Oxfam in Cardiff. In our capital city, so yeah, I, I don't buy it, Carwin. So yeah. that, that's that's that really. Okay, so we're really chuffed today to be joined by the Reverend Manon Kirtwan James. Manon was among the first women to be ordained priest in the Church in Wales in January 1997, and is currently the director of ministry for Saint Asaph Diocese in the Church in Wales. She's also a writer who received her PhD from the University of Birmingham in 2015. Her first book, which we'll be talking about today, is called Women, Identity, and Religion in Wales. 
uh, and it's been recently published with the University of Wales Press as part of the Gender Studies in Wales series. Croesomanon. Thank you. Yeah. That was all off the top of your head as well, wasn't it, Polly? It was, yeah. yeah. Just... I, have, I don't have it written down. No, not at all. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, thanks so much for coming down. Pleasure. Really uh, excited to have you. Okay, so first question, why did you decide to write the book? Well, I suppose I didn't decide to write the book as much as decide to do a PhD first. And, uh, you know, once I'd done all that hard work, I thought, well, I may as well turn it into a book. Um, Capitalise on it. Hmm? Capitalise on yeah, it. Yeah, and, and I suppose <laughs> Get I always... some monetary value from it. Like. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't think I'm going to make any money from it, unfortunately. But um, I'd always wanted to write as well, so, mm. you know, and I'm, I'm really pleased to have a book, and it's got a really lovely cover as well, so I'm really pleased with how it looks. Mm. I suppose about 10 years ago now, I started just think, thinking about the issue of the people that I was coming across in work, especially the women, they just didn't seem very confident. And part of my job as well at that time was to do training. And the people I was coming across in training who were women weren't all that confident. So I wanted to think about, well, is it what is it about women in the church or Welsh women? Because all my work was in Wales. Was there anything in that Welshness or being female or being in the church or being religious that led people to not have confidence that's kind of the heart of my interest in it anyway is you know in your introduction you mentioned this really interesting idea of parallels between you know on the one hand womanhood Mm. on the other hand uh welshness Mm. you know the impact of that on a person's identity and um especially what happens when those two characteristics come together i mean it's something i've definitely experienced because they're both marginalized identities Mm. but at the same time they share these really distinct features so lack of agency um, basically a lack of self-esteem and I mean well it's something we'll go into lots of detail later but maybe you could kind of just introduce us to that idea of kind of how you think those two identities converge. Well yes I think you're right I think in in many ways they're both of them stigmatized identities and um, I think with Welshness you know, are we post-colonial? Is it a post-colonial identity? You know, that's something I talk about in the book and I don't really come to a conclusion. But I think I think there is sort of a cultural cringe aspect or a aspect of Welsh identity in which perhaps we feel... Well, no, I don't think Welsh people feel inferior, actually. I think we feel mm. superior, if anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to be honest, we think, you mm-hmm. know, well, you know, why would anybody want to be anything other than Welsh? You mm-hmm. know, I'd hate not to be Welsh. I, yeah. I can't even imagine myself not being Welsh. But, you know, we do feel that there's this big neighbour next to us. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, certainly, and I explain this in the book, and perhaps you had this experience as well when you went to Oxford was it yes Oxford, Oxford yes. yeah yes, went yes. to both to you yeah yeah at the same yeah. time mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so um I did a theology course um as part of my training so you know my first degree was in the pol- well it was called the Polytechnic of Wales so that's a long time ago but the <laughs> University of Glamorgan and then mm-hmm. University of South Wales is now called yes yeah. Yeah, yeah so I did my first degree there so you know I'm not one of those people who would have got to Cambridge or Oxford on the basis of my A-levels at all. Yeah. But um, I did do a theology degree because I did get a two-on in my first degree. So I did a theology degree at Cambridge. Mm. And honestly, I, I've never come across it before. I couldn't believe it, that, that people mm. would just speak to me as if as if I was nobody and as if I was, you know, for them, Welsh people, we were just a joke mm-hmm. and definitely inferior and... Um, they just couldn't come to terms with, you know, well, why 
why hadn't I gone to public school first of all <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know and yeah. so I did feel then that that being Welsh was somehow strange and I think other people you know um, feel that and you know you're at, you're at the bits of jokes and all that kind of thing so yes so I, I think being Welsh when you're out of Wales or even in Wales sometimes it can be a stigmatized identity but certainly being female is as well you know because uh, well in, you know in my environment in, in the Anglican church when I started out I couldn't be ordained like the men because mm-hmm. I was female so yeah. so that does does have an effect on you mm. yeah definitely mm. I mean going back to what you were saying about Cambridge I mean it's an incredibly alienating experience mm. because it does lead you to question you know are they treating me differently because I'm a woman mm. or are they treating me differently because I'm Welsh mm. or is it because I speak a language that they don't mm. and then that kind of leads you on to well how do I relate all those different identities to each other mm. kind of creates that kind of I don't know melting pot mm. that really confuses people it throws people off mm. I mean in yeah you kick off by basically talking about identity kind of trying to define what the word means specifically you mentioned Judith Butler mm. kind of American feminist philosopher I'm very fond of her and she basically argues that identity is created through this thing she calls uh, the repetition of embodied acts. Mm. So it's the idea that we basically perform gender. So whereas biological sex is given to us gender separate, it's created or dictated by the society that we live in. And then, you know, in relation to that, you talk about Julia Kristeva's work. Um, she argues that we create gender through language in particular. So I guess following on from that, do you think that the church in Wales has had, or even, you know, does have today, a kind of a set of performances or language that affects how Welsh women kind of perceive or construct their gender, kind of in line with those feminist theories. So, you so, don't need to tell like have a one word it's answer. A, <laughs> yeah. It's a beefy question. Yeah, I'm glad you ex- you explained what those two theorists <laughs> teach because I found it very difficult to get my head around it to right. begin with. Yeah. Um, I think I think I'd go back a bit and I'd say actually um, what they teach, you know, a kind uh, a constructivist view of identity mm-hmm. is not something that most people, most Christians perhaps would have even. Mm. So um, my supervisors asked me the question, you know, do you believe in essentialism in an essentialist identity? And that set me off in this whole track of reading those people. And no, I don't, you know, but. But um, if you believe that men and women are different and that God has um, given men and women different roles, which is what um, people who are against ordination of women would, would argue, then that very essentialist position does put women in a very, very difficult place because, mm-hmm. you know, you can't be yourself because you're already, well, men and women, because you're already constrained into a set of norms mm-hmm. that um, isn't necessarily you and can constrict you in, a, in your own development and flourishing. So definitely, so what's the question you're asking me? In, in the Church in Wales, mm-hmm. are there, oh, well, you know, the Church in Wales... I mean, it's quite a broad phrase, that isn't it, the church in Wales? It depends whether you're literally looking at, say, the sermons that are delivered to women or biblical texts. I think I think what I would say as well is, is that 
the church in Wales, uh, you know, churches, just like any other grouping in society, has its own rules and regulations and norms and how people behave and everything. And, and I think what I learned through this research is that because I looked primarily at women sort of my age, middle-aged, middle between 30 and 55. So obviously a lot of the people who go to church older than that and you know they're used to women being at home looking after the homes they're used to men performing certain roles so because of that of those generations and that they bring that to church so it's only very recently that it's not all women doing the tea and all men doing the leading roles so one of the things I mentioned in, in the book as well is Men Elvin's poem, Will the Ladies Please Stay Behind? Because that poem sort of critiques this idea that, that women have to make the tea. And even though it seems to be a little example, what my research participants said was that they felt quite constricted by this idea that, that there were certain jobs in church that men did and certain jobs that women did. No, I mean, that's that's really interesting. And I guess... Probably my what I should have asked first of all was um, kind of ask you to explain the kind of religious context in Wales today then. Mm. So often people can get quite confused with the difference between nonconformity, mm. difference between chapels and churches. Mm. So maybe you could just kind of give us a simple, maybe there isn't a simple answer, but kind of an <laughs> overview of that context. Okay. Well, I think if you looked at the census or the last census, I think the thing that's interesting about Wales, well, it's not interesting, actually, it makes it a bit boring. <laughs> but, but the, the, the exact thing, opposite thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the thing about Wales is that we're not very rel- religiously diverse. So I think, I think, um, I said 57.6% of people are Christian, or they say they're Christians in, in Wales. And then I think the next religion to that, with any any great number of adherents, is Islam, with 1.5%. Mm-hmm. So that's... that's so are um, they taken over, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, one of my research participants did say, you know, well, one day we'll be w- waking up wearing a burqa. And uh-huh. I thought, I, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so so we're not very religiously diverse. So, so we, mm. you know, if, if people are are anything that they they will say that they're Christian and I can't remember the percentage but there's quite you know a reasonable percentage of people who say they're they're atheist or agnostic Mm -hmm. but uh, so that would be the biggest one after Christianity really and then when you look at the different types of Christians so actually I think the the Church of Wales and the Catholic Church is stronger numerically now it didn't used to be the case and then you've got quite a lot of free church denominations. So you've got the Presbyterians, the Annie Benwir, the um, URC, Baptists. So there are quite a lot of nonconformist or free church denominations as well. Yeah, I think that's where people tend to get quite confused. Yeah. It's a very, very complex idea, isn't it? It is, yeah. I think something that's interesting that you point out about kind of contemporary Christianity in Wales then mm. is this kind of pattern of secularisation. Mm. So we kind of often talk about religion as... Well, it's often presented to people then as kind of um, a place of refuge mm. then. Um, and obviously in Wales, you know, we or a refuge from kind of the miseries of everyday life then. I think Wales as a nation, the perception is that we've had to deal with quite a fair bit of misery. Mm. So kind of with that in mind, you'd think that, and I think the general perception still is that Wales would have held on to religion, mainly Christianity, mm. Um, more so than kind of other nations or mm. regions of the UK. Yeah. Actually, you point out that that's not true. Bringing the statistic 
So the 2011 census indicates that Wales is more secularised than any part of England. It it's, is, yeah. it's incredible. You know, I didn't realise that no. at all. I was really quite surprised when I read that. And also it's kind of how rapidly there's been secularisation mm. in Wales. So again, I'll read directly. Between 2001 and 2011, the percentage of the population of Wales identifying as Christians fell from 71.9% to 57.6%. I mean, that's a huge drop in mm. 10 years. Um, what do you think the cause of that was then? Yeah, you stole my question, Nathan. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I peered over. Um, yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> stole my thunder. <laughs> I think secularisation is, is, is happening anyway across across uh, Western mm. Europe, anyways, and in the West generally. I think, well, it's some of the things I say in my book, I, I, think, I think that... Uh, for older people, older, the older generations coming together, you know, the social activities of churches and chapels are very important to them. So that there's a really interesting study by Merched um, Waur, and they have this um, study online, which which people can look at. And in their oral kind of history project of, of elderly women, um, almost every single one of them said that that they had a church or chapel background and that that was crucial to their to their lives, you know, every single one, you know. Mm. Um, and I think what's happened in Wales, it's it's different from the rest of the UK. It's like being a boom and a burst. So it's sort of religion was very, very popular. And you could say that because of the free churches became very, very popular because it was it was a way of people asserting their own independence, really, and, and being anti-establishment you know, and mm. being non-conformist as opposed to being free church. But I think, so the social aspect is really important, but now the social aspect of coming together, uh, younger people, I don't think, want to come together in big groups with mm-hmm. other people at the same time every week. So the idea of having to go to a service at 11 o'clock and sitting down and, and shutting up for an hour <laughs> yeah. while there's somebody at the front telling you what you should believe it's alien, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is. It is. Isn't I it? think it's. It's. I mean, even the difference between my generation mm. and my mum's generation mm. is. It's incredibly stark. You mm. know. I mean, I was christened, but that's as far as it's gone in my life mm. in terms of a religious kind of interest. But um, if we're talking about secularisation in Wales, then do you think would you put any of that down to kind of changing attitudes towards women, or kind of people becoming say more aware of maybe feminist criticisms of the church Mm. there's one sociologist of religion who would say that the reason why secularism has come in not just in wales but in other other parts of the west is because of of women and so and i forget which one he is is he bruce i think so he would say that you know the 60s came and um women had freedom and they could do what they wanted so it would be women who would look after you know the religious side of things for the whole family so once they said well i'm not doing this anymore then the whole thing kind of fell apart that would be his argument and yeah i think i think he makes a good case Mm -hmm. um are women more religious than men you see it's a it's a good question isn't it yeah i mean it's something kind of when you're studying A-level GCSE sociology, mm. you know, you're always kind of told women are more religious than men. Mm. You don't tend to be given kind of the More hard... spiritual. <laughs> more spiritual. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, there, I think there's probably something to be said actually about that. Is oh, the, yeah. Even away from organised religion then, there's, I mean, even the fact that you, this book 
the studies in this book, you choose that qualitative mm. approach rather than quantitative mm. and kind of in feminist criticism then. Well, just to explain first difference for people who don't know between qualitative and quantitative, mm. it's, they get lazy to switch up. Qualitative would be if you were studying, say, women and religion, you'd sit down with a woman and have a conversation. You'd ask her about her life experiences, how things make her feel, um, her memories of past events. Whereas if you were conducting a quantitative study, it would you just rely on hard data kind of closed box questionnaires, that kind of thing. So this book, you kind of talk about the heart of it is these interviews with 13 women. Mm. What we probably should ask is, what did you find out from them? You know, was there anything they said that shocked you? What would kind of be, what would be the headline from those interviews? Okay. I mean, there's a lot of them <laughs> to kind of summarise in uh, one question. Well, um, you know, the spoiler alert is that actually whilst women did have confidence. So, you know, I ended up in the book ending up thinking that actually I thought the Welsh women didn't have confidence. I thought that I didn't have confidence. You know, by the end of writing a PhD and, you know, uh, going from being in my mid-30s to mid-40s, I was a different person. Um, But certainly the women I interviewed had confidence and they talked about themselves as being empowered and strong. So that's sort of the headline and, you know, I hope people will still buy the book, even though I've told them what the book, <laughs> yeah. what the book is. Who dies at the end. Who dies, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, I found out loads of things, but I think that, that was the main thing, that, that women, whilst women have an empowered stereotype, which is the strong woman. And, you know, it's, it's close to the Welsh man, but actually I think that's changing into being um, the strong woman, really. Mm. Even though I think Wales is more secularised than any part of England, the interesting thing is I still think people do relate to Christianity as part of an identity. And I think that's changing. Mm. But but certainly um, I, I interviewed two women who, were, who would identify as agnostic or atheist. And one of them certainly felt a bit embarrassed about being that, which surprised me. But I think there is a sense that, you know, there is that kind of, residual history of Christianity and Welshness being closely linked. So she felt embarrassed because she just felt like it was almost like a bit um, betraying what would be, I guess, typical of an identity for a Welsh woman then? Yes, I think so, yes. And and she just felt like a freak because, you know, when she was growing up and then she was not a Christian, she felt that, that people would judge her for that. And, you know, she was trying to find out about faith and other faiths and everything as well and really went into it but she just felt that she um you know she she felt quite comfortable in who she was but to begin with she would talk about oh yes I you know well I wasn't I'm not a Christian and she felt embarrassed and I think um I think her family would would joke with her and and call her a heathen <laughs> but she was a, in a Christian family in a Christian environment so like this the stigma would have been more pronounced rather than like... no I think later on I think her husband and her her son not that they you know were big Christians going to church every week but that kind of residual Christianity you know the mm. Christianity that you've described yeah. Polly yeah. is is was there for them you know kind of mm-hmm. a well I mean it's it's definitely true because the cultural kind of um, the influence then of non-conformist culture mm. especially mm. it's almost impossible to separate the non-conformist image of Wales from the general image of Wales yes. that we think about so you think about you know uh, Valley Terrace 
you know, housewives, you know, going to church with their rollers still in. So it is very difficult to kind of separate those images. And I suppose if a woman has kind of drifted away then from that nonconformist tradition, then it almost feels as if she's also drifted away from a Welsh tradition, yes. tradition of being Welsh, you yes. know, herself. So yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. But going back to what you said about mm. Welsh women were actually confident, mm. you know, it, it is something that kind of gets sidelined when we think about, I mean, I'm talking about nonconformity mm. in particular now, but it kind of creates this image of the Valley's housewife, mm. um, kind of obedient, you know, washing her husband's clothes, whatever. And that isn't the case. You know, women actually found empowerment from their experiences with Christianity. Yeah, I, th- I think the interesting thing for me as well is that is that there were, well, I suppose because of my contacts as well, the, the women that I interviewed were probably slightly more religious than than, than would be the norm. Mm. But um, what they described was that their own faith, personal faith, was empowering to them. Mm-hmm. So I had one woman who was gay and felt that her own personal relationship with God was very empowering to her, and she had no doubt that that um, you know God made her who she was, you know, all aspects of her life, including her sexuality. But in terms of her own, um, how she was able to, you know, she wasn't completely able to be completely out everywhere, and certainly wasn't. She was out to her minister. Her minister was completely supportive of her. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about a tiny little chapel in a tiny Welsh village. Yeah. You know, her successive ministers completely supportive of her. Her mother completely supportive of her. Um, but as to whether she could be out in her chapel is is, mm-hmm. a, is a different matter. So I think what I found was that their individual faith was empowering, and their own God, you know, the God whom they had a relationship with, completely empowering. But, and there's one story, Elena's story, where, you know, she felt that her faith made her leave her husband. Well, you know, the official teaching of the church is that, is not that. Yeah, yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> so, so what I would say is, is that people, and that, this is true for me, their own experience of faith, so their spirituality, say, is empowering. Their experience of institutionalized religion is completely different from that. So, so that is one big learning that I did from from this research really yeah. and I think it's something that the institutions you know my own and and others really need to take on board that the people that women my age are going to church or chapel they're playing the game they're listening they're being obedient but actually inside they have a completely different relationship with God from from the one that they're being told that they should have well in terms of the one they've been told they should have mm. What do you think that's been, kind of historically speaking? Well, you know, when when you walk into a church or a chapel, the setup shows shows first of all, doesn't it? So you're supposed to sit in rows, mm-hmm. and you've got a you know a, an Anglican church a pulpit at the side, or a, in a chapel a pulpit in the front. But it still is about submission, isn't it? You sit down and you shut up and you listen. Yeah. Um. So, I think, you know, the way forward is not just. Well, I, I don't actually say this in the book, but it's not just changing teaching and everything, but it's actually changing how, how the whole thing is set up, even in, in a building, you know. I mean, it's, it's something um, later on you start to write about how um, kind of traditional theology then hasn't really given women the space to explore no. their own kind of personal religion then. Mm. So instead they've turned to writing, mm. and especially, you know, poetry, uh, prose, that kind of thing. Mm. 
So I was wondering if maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. I mean, there's this amazing poem. I have it just here, An Ode to the Vagina. It's been doing the rounds on Twitter quite recently, actually, mm. um, by Guerville Mechain. So, and I guess what's important about it is that it shows that this repressive attitude of women's sexuality mm. in kind of the religious sphere is quite a relatively recent trend, or at least that's kind of what you suggest in the book. Hmm. So, yeah, maybe just talk us through that. So, um, I think one of the things that, that led me down this path of researching this, really, was I'm very interested in poetry, so I, I write a little bit and I enjoy reading it. And, um, yes, you're right. I think I think um, my branch of theology, practical theology, would say that we do our theology not just in books um, that are very dry, but, but in ev- all aspects of culture, so poetry, writing, all kinds of and especially women, you see, that's how women could do their theology was through through other forms of writing. Mm. It's, it's very, you know, when you think about something like The Colour Purple, you know, that's been a very influential book. Mm. It's not a theology book at all, is it? But, no. it, but it talks about God. I, I thought you were talking yeah. about the literal colour. And then you're, you're wearing a purple top. I was like, oh, right. <laughs> what, what is, sorry, The Colour Purple? What is? Um, Alice, the Alice Walker book, you know, The Colour The Colour Purple. African American writer. Oh right, it's really incredible. I haven't actually read it. I haven't actually heard of it, so I'll, I'll there we are. go, go, ahead, go a step one. ahead of Polly. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. yes, oh, I'm trying to think of uh, what is the book. It's it's the story of um, a young girl growing up, isn't it? And um, yeah, and it's there's kind of a same sex relationship yeah. that kind of blossoms, isn't there? Mm. It's about African American identity and mm. womanhood. So there's probably a lot of parallels we could draw with this. Yeah. if I'd read the book, <laughs> which I haven't. So, well, there's a film with um, um, Oprah Winfrey in it. Yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Wrinkle in Time, that one. Different. No, it's Colour Purple. <laughs> right. it's, it's an old film now, Colour Purple. <laughs> uh, oh, what were we talking Yeah, um, I know, I know. Um, An Ode to the Vagina. Oh, so the gosh, yes. Okay, yeah. It's a yeah, relatively recent idea that religion has kind of repressed sexuality. Yes. So it's not just true in Wales, but, uh, you know, what did what have the Victorians ever done for us? So they, they really kind of changed things in terms of, of um, how people talked about sex, didn't they? Yeah. So because of my interest in poetry, I, I had this book on Welsh women's poetry and, and, and I started reading it at the front. And so I was reading medieval poetry in the 15th century. And the second poem, I think, in this book is an ode to the vagina. And I was thinking, my word, how on earth did this happen? Because, you know, it's not just a poem about the vagina. It's it's a religious praise poem to the vagina. Yeah. And I thought, yeah. how has this happened? How have you got from there... To, to this kind of repressed view of womanhood yep. that, that we have, that religion has really kind of helped construct now. So, so in a way, that was a huge part of uh, a very important step in my research journey, really. I thought, well, I'm going to have to find out what happened. And, uh, you know, even though I grew up in North Wales and I, I did history and all that kind of thing, there were loads of things that I didn't know about. So one of the things that I didn't know about was the Blue Books, so for me to come to stumble across this this um you know the 1847 report yeah that's it yeah i know <laughs> uh, i'm not a historian so the 1847 report in um so it's inquiry into the state of religion in wales and basically what you have there is you know english people english men coming in doing some research on Welsh people's ed- educational ability and 
they use it, well, the Anglican clergy, basically, they use it to slate the growing free churches and try to make out that, that women who are nonconformist are, um, are slags, basically. Yeah. And yeah. you just think, well, you know, because of I'd grown up with this repressed view of especially uh, nonconformism, I thought this is completely the opposite of, of what I thought was true. So you have even the vicar of Nevin, my hometown is Vent Nevin, he is quoted in this report saying that... In the Blue Books report? Yeah. All oh, right, I thought you meant like you, you knew him. You know, not the you know, obviously he was local, but like the yeah. you, you know, knew him as well. I was like, oh, <laughs> no. he's, been, he's been kicking around a bit. Like. <laughs> I'm not that old, everybody. Oh. <laughs> How dare you, Nick? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so he said that he had to glue down people's windows, you know, the, the women's windows, otherwise they, mm. they would just be climbing out his servants. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think then. I have the quote here, actually. Oh. So it says, yeah, the vicar of Nevin was highly critical of his female parishioners' morality compared to that of English women mm. and commented that in England, farmers' daughters are respectable. In Wales, they are in the constant habit of being courted in bed. Yeah, and then complaining about having to lock the bedroom windows of his female servants. Yes. Yeah, it's um, really incredible. I mean, what you also point out is that that kind of immorality of nonconformist Welsh women then it was uh, kind of used as a tool mm. then to argue that Wales needed to be civilised. Yes. Or rather anglicised, you point mm. out, actually. So instilled with the values, language of mm. the English middle classes. Mm. And it basically gave political leaders that moral authority to kind of start eradicating mm. Welsh culture. Well, I mean, what kind of form did that eradication take following on from the Blue Books? Because, mm. I mean... When we look at the blue books now, you know, historically speaking, you know, they are quite shocking and they've given us a lot of the stereotypes that we still hang on to today. But what we kind of forget is how, you know, misogynistic Mm. they often were. So, I mean, what, you know, what was the impact of the blue books? I mean, on kind of women's religious experiences but also women in general in wales mm. well I, I think i think the worst thing about about the blue books and i think this is what um isn't this uh, the point that um saunders lewis makes in Tangedriaith, is that we accepted it yeah you know so i think that's what the, that was the worst thing so mm. so we know we can point to things like the welsh knot and and to the to the kind of the mythologies about you know, if you're speaking Welsh, you are uncivilized and it needs to be beaten out to people, this kind of thing. But I think the worst thing is the fact that the we took all this on ourselves. Yeah. and we did it to ourselves. Yes, that's it's the worst a... thing, I think. Yeah. So so things like, you know, there was a magazine that was produced called The Gymraeus, which was all about, you know, Welsh womanhood, what, what women should be like. Um, edited by a man you said yeah 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 (laughs) yeah and then and then you know it's from that era you sort of get the the welsh costume and all that kind of thing as well you Mm -hmm. know so it's it's kind of a construction of welsh identity deliberate construction i was quite surprised not that i really thought uh, much about women's welsh costume but just to hear it's an absolute fabrication (laughs) and it just looks like a kind of um what are the americans called uh pilgrim the the pilgrim hat didn't it yeah yeah I mean, um, Agam Rice, is that now, I'm sure I read kind of recently, it's kind of become this feminist publication or have I completely made that up? I don't, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know of anything called Agam Rice now. No. Honest. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I probably made it up then. Still edited by a man though. Like, <laughs> just a really woke dude. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, um, well, actually speaking of images then, mm. kind of Welsh traditional dress, you kind of dedicate a big section of the book to looking at 
images of mm. women. It's probably one of my favorite parts of the book, actually. And you kind of identify these five main mm. tropes. Mm. Um, yeah, so you talk about the Welsh mam, the Welsh lady in Welsh costume, the pious woman, the sexy woman, and the funny woman. Mm. I mean, it's kind of a universal truth that women are always kind of dichotomized in this way. Mm. People try to put them into very these very clear-cut categories. Mm. And obviously, when you do that, it ignores how multifaceted human beings are, mm. you know, can't be categorized simply. And so obviously it kind of negates that whole kind of the complexity. Of, it's what makes us human is that kind of complexity of identity. So it's kind of a dehumanizing process then, that attempt to categorize women. Mm. And obviously that's something that's, as you say, has happened to Welsh women mm. by being placed into one of these five categories. Mm. Because, I mean, almost all the kind of cultural images that have come out of Wales can be placed into those five categories. Mm. And, and that's also based, it, it's Deirdre Beddoes who says, who says that. Yeah. Yes, because I've used her writing for that, actually. Yeah. She's been massively influential, hasn't she, in helping mm. Welsh women rediscover her own history. Yeah. Mm. Well, so could you talk us through some of Beddoes' kind of work on those? I mean, you go into all of those identities in a lot of detail. Mm. But I think... Well, probably one of the most interesting then is the Welsh man. Yes. This idea of, you know, housewife image. Mm. So kind of what, how is that informed by religion then? Or do you think it kind of it found its source somewhere else? I don't know. It's, well, I, th- I think the Welsh man, I think where we get the image from is from the film, isn't it? Or the, yeah. how, how Green Is My Valley from the books. Mm-hmm. So I, I think... A lot of it is from popular culture. So, you know, the funny woman, you know, would we think Welsh women were funny if we hadn't seen Heidi High? Oh, have you heard of Heidi High? No. <laughs> I, I, I have. And, I, was, um, I was born in 1998. So, uh, <laughs> I, I have. And um, so when I read that bit, I looked up at Heidi High. I was like, oh, there's, uh, I remember that. But um, I also look back at how Green was my valley. For, yeah. for some reason, I got it mixed up with very Annie Mary. So I thought it was done early 2000s, but it's a black and white film. Yeah. So the clip I saw was uh, these, um, first of all, it's like a very kind of orientalist view of Wales, isn't mm. it? With oh, yeah. Everyone, yes. all, the, all the guys getting up in the morning yeah. to have a sing song on the way to work, <laughs> to like, <laughs> oh, yeah. their potential deaths. Yeah. But there's a really good bit when there's just an English school teacher mm. and then uh, just two of the dads come in and they just beat him up. I was like, oh, that's, that's possibly quite accurate. Uh, <laughs> so that was just quite funny, that bit. Like, they just lace this dude for, uh, did he, he hit like one of the kids, did he? Oh, something like that. Yes, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. But what I love about how green is my valley is that is that the Welsh mam in there is Irish, and you can actually hear her accent coming through. You know, <laughs> yeah. So it, it it's it's really is you know because it, very Americanized as well and everything, isn't mm. it? And how green is my valley was even produced before my time. So you know, <laughs> but, but I still think it, it's still. Because you, you've heard of it, have you? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, Heidi High. And we often yeah. make reference as well to um, the film Pride, which is... Oh, um, yes, mm. yes. But, uh, like, when they go to North Wales, and <laughs> North Wales is just one kind of... Looks like a village shop on, like, a hill. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so well, I went to see Pride in Sydney World in um, Llandino Junction. Yeah. And then they said, oh, we're going to go and see a hill now, you know. And then we saw them driving up to a hill. And we saw them arriving in a hill, which was like up a mountain and this kind of this little cottage in the middle of nowhere and meant, this was meant to be a trail wasn't yeah, it it's all of real <laughs> <laughs> and we thought no they have not been to a they were just bitterly disappointed <laughs> oh, no. yeah. real's tourist, tourism boost uh, like yeah, sharply yeah. increased and sharply <laughs> decreased yeah, so can you imagine if you went there to stay in a hotel and trail and you know uh, yeah. and it, it didn't quite look like that <laughs> <laughs> well yeah I mean 
pride then talking about pride um there's the welsh man all the way through that that, i mean there's that amazing character i can't remember is she called gwen there's um there's a very elderly welsh lady Mm. who kind of totters over to the phone when they initially make the call to this small mining village yeah i'll get it for you now love like that yeah Yeah. the gays have arrived (laughs) no is it uh oh what's his name like david not die your gays are here (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. oh is that um melda staunton Maybe, but there's yeah, uh, what you're saying about the um, Welsh man. There's three of them, isn't there? There's the okay. Bill Nye's sister. I mean, it's not. Who I don't know the actress. I, I didn't want to like use that as a signifier of her person. Yeah. And then um, the one who's based on name P. Uh, Shan. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm. Shan. A... I always forget her surname. Shan Shan. Shan Shan. Yeah, mm-hmm. the typical Welsh name. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I mean, all of the women really in as soon as they cross over the border mm. into Wales, they kind of. I don't know, they they take this passage into that kind of maternal yes. kind of homeland. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, arguably all the women in... Uh, well, it's filmed in Banwen, I think. I've walked up and down that street. But mm. in that... Um, is, is, do they call it Onshine in the film? Uh, yeah, I think so. Mm. Yeah. So it's on Netflix, we... so maybe we'll watch it when we <laughs> go back. We like. need yeah. a refresh. Yeah. Yeah, so the Welsh man. Uh, yeah, you're right. It's... It does come from pop culture as well. Well, I guess one of the kind of earliest uh, images of Welsh pop culture you talk about is this uh, painting called Salem Mm. by uh, Sidney Bosper. You mentioned this painting is kind of in that category of the Welsh lady in Welsh dress Mm. image. And one of the earliest kind of examples of pop culture we have in Wales because it was made available through soap tokens, I think you said, kind of from your local shop. Yeah. Um, so suddenly this image was everywhere across Wales, mm. the UK as well. Mm. But obviously the relevance that it kind of gained in Wales mm. in terms of symbolism, you kind of talk about how it reflects on kind of pious Welsh women. Mm. And you talk about this idea of the kind of distrust of religious women that's kind of reflected in this painting. Yes. See, I, th- I think how... So when you look at pop culture, pop, popular culture and just even art and how it's been used, it's not just what it's conveying to us, but then how we run with it, isn't mm-hmm. it? So the reception of Salem, I think, is really interesting. So this whole thing that you can see the devil in the folds of her, her shawl, you know, because of her pride, you know. So it, I think it's the reception of that image that's interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because cause it's it's a stereotype. And then, you know, it's our kind of Welsh identity saying, you know, you can't have a woman centre stage at anything, so we have to kind of pull her, pull her down. Yeah. And, and it's like Welsh people generally, I think, you know, you can't be good at anything. Well, you know, in English, we would call it the tall poppy syndrome, wouldn't we? Mm-hmm. You know, you want to bring people down who are... Who think highly of themselves, but um, the work of and I'm not sure how to say her name, but Carol Trosset or Trosset or whatever, mm-hmm. she she did this ethnographic research in the 90s of Welsh Wales, and she said that it's it's not Welsh to put yourself forward, and she referred to this uh, phrase in Welsh, "kefil blaen," you know, the front runner horse. Oh, we don't like this person. He's a kefil blaen, or she's a kefil blaen. So I think in the culture, there's this sense that 
it's like shaming this woman for being centre stage by saying that she had pride, you know, because she had this new shawl on. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, everybody knows the picture, yeah. don't they? Because yeah. cause people had, and it was the only piece of art that most people would have because mm-hmm. you wouldn't have been able to afford art otherwise, would you? So that's why it was, it was very prevalent. So most people in Wales have got memories of their grandmother or some relative having this picture, don't do, they? Do you think that it almost doubled as propaganda? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's tricky, isn't it? Because propaganda kind of implies that Sydney Vosper was trying to make some comment about Welsh women. Yeah. When you kind of read about the process he went through in painting this, yeah. it does seem like he was genuinely quite innocent. Mm. He was interested in kind of capturing that mm. chapel life. Mm. He, he kind of liked the aesthetics of it. He mm. liked how it kind of seemed frozen in time in a way. But yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right about women possessing a religious identity can be a source of empowerment. Mm. So as soon as this woman is seen as having gained her own kind of empowerment, efforts are then made to undo that and unpick it. And Mm. I mean, well, so for anyone that doesn't know, I mean, I'm sure you've all seen it, but it's basically a scene in Kapil Salem. um, And it kind of shows an old woman arriving uh, late to chapel in this elaborate traditional dress. And traditional viewings, as you said, Bannon kind of claimed that you can see the outline of the devil's face and the folds of her shawl. And yeah, I mean, like you said, it kind of goes back to this idea that people kind of perceive pious women with unease. Mm. There's something not right about mm. women having that kind of spiritual dedication as if they're not, they can't be capable of that. You know, there must be something underlying this. I mean, the first time I saw the painting was... um first episode of Hintland on BBC Wales. The Welsh version was a gwyll on S4C. And in that episode, the painting is associated with this elderly, pious woman, Christian pious woman who's been murdered, who it later is revealed to have been abusing children and adults. Yeah. So yeah. that's the association yeah. of... I haven't seen it and now... <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. To, yeah. I've, I've ruined it for Second everyone. Second spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, if you're... I think age plays into it as well. Mm. If you're an older Christian mm. woman who's kind of had the tenacity to hold on to a religious belief, it's kind of this idea that women don't have enough spiritual dedication to pursue religious practice without some ulterior motive. Mm. Do you think that maybe that's a fallout from Adam and Eve, uh, that story? <laughs> you know, Well, the Salem picture. Oh, no, I mean, in terms of you saying that they don't have... Um... Women kind of, yeah, kind of being corrupting forces influence, yeah. that is kind of what we get from the book of genesis isn't it yeah and and you know um some of the some of the theologians the uh it, from the early church i quote would, would say that you know the women of the devil's gateway and this kind of thing and then um christine kinsey who whose image um or who you know is this fantastic artist we have in wales who um and i've used her painting as the front cover for my book well she's um she also says that in a in a planet interview and i've mm-hmm. i quote that as well about you know how religious stereotypes of women are you know women are either whores or you know corrupting influences or mothers you know you can't be anything in between yeah Yeah. well it's that that virgin hall dichotomy isn't it yeah i mean in english literature which is what i study is Mm. everything relates back to that Mm. it goes back to kind of what we were talking about this Mm. categorization of Mm. women so well I guess to kind of go back to kind of some feminist theory, Mm. I mean, feminist criticism has always had a very complicated relationship with religion Mm. as a general subject. 
obviously in the West, Christianity specifically. So obviously there have been people who've seen kind of Christianity as inherently patriarchal. Mm. We have this language of the patriarch in the mm. Bible. And yeah, mentioning Genesis, they kind mm. of point to, you know, description of Eve. I think I have a quote from Genesis here. So chapter three, verse 16 is, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And that's God talking to Eve. So, you know, some feminists have kind of argued that Christianity has been used to kind of legitimize then the mm. subordination of women mm. in the West. Do, do you think as well that's kind of um, repeated or echoed in the sense that God's always been in the image of a man, isn't he? Mm. I mean, in, in some cases, I know it's like an abstract concept, depending on what... Yeah. When it com comes back to linguistics, the neutral term is he, him, mankind, for referring to men and women. Mm. So... I guess to kind of take that perspective, you have to take a kind of fundamentalist reading of the Bible. Obviously, not all Christians will read that and think that, yes, women's desire should be for their husbands and mm. they should be ruled over. But then on the other hand, you do have, I mean, Linda Woodhead, I've been reading recently, she's an academic at Lancaster Uni. Um, she kind of talks about religious forms of feminism. So this idea that some women have kind of been able to weave religion kind of into mm. this vehicle of empowerment then mm. and kind of self-ownership then. So another very long-winded question, <laughs> <laughs> but kind of as a feminist yourself, you know, self-proclaimed mm. feminist and someone who is, you know, clearly concerned with the role of women mm. in the church, kind of how do you respond to that? You know, have you ever kind of felt conflicted in terms of trying to reconcile your feminist mm. beliefs with some maybe older Christian beliefs. Mm. Yes, well, I think this book is, is partly my art working of that, really. Mm. And um, so, first of all, I would say that, that, yes, so if we believe that human beings are made in God's image, then God can't be male because, you know, yeah. half of us are not male. So, mm. so there is a way of kind of going back to the tradition and reinterpreting it, which is partly what I try and do. And I use one theologian called Miroslav Wolf, and um, he talks about, you know, the malfunctioning of religion so that religion can be used and abused in order to, well, not necessarily consciously, but can malfunction in terms of of the theology being used to legitimize different forms of, of uh, injustice. So, you know, even in South Africa, people, people would use the Bible to legitimize apartheid. Well, you know, how on earth would any reasonable person think that that was okay? And the same, you know, yes, a Christian feminist perspective would say that, yes, um, the church has used the Bible to legitimize patriarchy, sexism, and that's part of the kind of feminist, Christian feminist project, is trying to recover what, what true Christianity is actually about. And Miroslav Wolf says, and I, I quote him, that, that, you know, in the original forms of Christianity, um, actually, you could argue we're very much non-essentialist, you know, because if you believe that God is the Trinity, although it's, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. but if, if God is Trinity, then God isn't binary, yeah. you know? So, so if you can go back to a theology, and that, that's what I'm trying to promote in a sense, which actually is a bit more loose in terms of identity and theologies of identity, then that opens up a much more creative way, I think, of engaging with God and engaging with each other. Yeah, well, I think it actually goes back to something I said earlier. I think I started to make a point and I didn't quite finish it about qualitative versus yeah. quantitative yeah. kind of research styles. 
um, and your choice to kind of focus on individual experiences, you know, obviously while acknowledging kind of structural problems. And I guess what you were saying about how women have always had to practice religion kind of in a more personal mm. uh, way than men. Men maybe have been more drawn to organized religion, yeah. whereas women have been, but because of maybe some kind of the patriarchal elements of that, mm. they've had to kind of take it home with them and practice their own kind of personal brand. And I guess you take this qualitative take then, what that kind of allows us to do is bring in maybe some of the less traditional kind of, less traditional readings of women and religion. Mm. One of the things I was drawn to that you mentioned is uh, kind of the influence of race then. Mm. You kind of uh, mentioned Charlotte Williams writing. Yeah. So um, she won the Arts Council of Wales Book of the Year Award mm. back in 2003 for a Sugar in a Slate, which was mm. a memoir about her life. And I guess what makes her writing kind of distinct is that she's Welsh Guyanese woman. Mm. And we've talked about kind of the duality of Welshness and womanhood then mm. on identity. But the impact of race when it's brought into the fold, I think is really interesting. Mm. So, you know, what do you kind of have to add to that? idea you know what do you think happens when race is brought into the fold of being a woman and being welsh or even do you think that the church has done everything it can to be welcoming to ethnic minorities or to kind of embrace that multicultural multiple identity well you see i think there's there's an inherent contradiction in in welsh identity and race in that in that if you look at the consensus um, Wales is not massively ethnically diverse, really, and the diversity is in certain areas too, you know, especially in Cardiff or whatever. But the one main stereotype of Welsh women is Shirley Bassey. Mm. So, so there's a contradiction there in a sense that that you have this um, sense in which, you know, that there are lots of communities in Wales which are which are all white, you know. Mm. My my brother actually lived in London for a while and he's living in Melbourne now and he used to kind of feel uncomfortable coming home because it just didn't feel right to him, you know, to be in such a monochrome kind of culture. Mm -hmm. So I had one question with my interviewees, which was, you know, tell me about stereotypes of Welsh women. Who are your, you know, people that you can think of who are your sort of, ro well, not role models, but stereotypes. And almost all of them would say Shirley Bassey. Um, so, I, sorry, just mm. interject like a little tidbit about Shirley Bassey. Yeah. My <laughs> my my um, grandmother was really racist, but she loved Shirley Bassey, yeah. and it's just like the kind of blind side of just like yeah. the she's like oh, a beautiful singer. Yeah. I, I don't know, I never met her. She died before I was born, which yeah. is a good thing because she's racist. <laughs> and all racist people should yeah, die. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but the one thing else I also found was that um, there was a. Uh, there was a strand, this kind of strong woman strand that was that was coming through, that that chimed with. So in, in my reading of feminist theology, it completely chimed with womanist theology, and and with the image of of black women or African the African American matriarch, the way that, that um, you know in America they described the stereotype in feminist theology, they could have been writing about the Welsh strong man, hmm. so. So, uh, you know, in the book, I also argue there is a sort of a correlation in a sense, you know. So is it is it because um, Welsh women have, or Welsh Christian women have more of a, um, you know, more closely linked with perhaps post-colonial women or 
African-American women than other white women? You know, I think it's an interesting question. I don't know what the answer is. Do you, I was um, thinking about that. Do you think there's perhaps like um, a relation in the sense that perhaps they were uh, seen as more working class mm. or, you know, um, more involved in um, like an industrial yes. uh, type of, um, yeah. not atmosphere, but like setting. To work, basically. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So, so I suppose if, if, if um you couldn't be the angel in the home could you because if you had to if you were working you were taking in people's washing or whatever or working in a factory yeah or you know like uh to a sense that those groups of people have been traditionally oppressed so mm. that um them representing media would be from that point of view rather than yeah. a point of empowerment I, was, I, I thought maybe yeah that would. but they were empowered you see they were empowered though in a sense as well because because the kind of stereotype of the African-American matriarch in feminist theology, anyway, is quite empowered, really, um, mm. in, in the same way as, as, as the Welsh women were. Yeah. Uh, mm. Well, I guess we have that side to it. Um, but then, again, in kind of fiction, mm. then we have this kind of other representation of nonconformity mm. in particular. Um, and there's this quote from How Green Was My Valley, the mm. 1939 uh, Richard Llewellyn kind of a image of the chapel. Mm. Um, okay, so we do get this cultural stereotype of nonconformist chapel culture um, in Wales having this repressive effect on mm. women's and women's sexuality mm. um, in particular. Um, yeah, and you write about the scene from How Green Was My Valley. Um, and it basically depicts a pregnant woman being thrown out of church mm. by a deacon, mm. uh, an unmarried woman mm. who's fallen pregnant. I, I mean, I could read the Mr. Deacon's part. <laughs> you should, and in advice. In is Mr. Deacon Welsh? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Is yeah. He? Yeah. Okay. Well, I I can't. I think I'll cause a lot of offence if I put on my Welsh accent. <laughs> so uh... all those oppressed Welsh men, yeah, <laughs> downtrodden. So it's, well, the quote is, Your lusts have found you out, shouted Mr. Parry. And Thump went his fist on the handrail. And you have paid the price for all women like you. Your body was the trap of the devil, and you have allowed temptation to visit you. Now you bring an illegitimate child into the world against the commandment of God. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Prayer is wasted on your sort, and you are not fit to enter the house of God. You shall be cast forth into the outer darkness until you have learned your lesson. So that very emotive reading mm. there from myself. <laughs> we, we all have tears rolling down our eyes. And... We're scared now. Yeah. Quivering. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, right, this is fiction, but arguably it was reflective mm. of a kind of reality. Um, I think in the interviews you conduct mm. with those 13 women, uh, some of their comments do mirror that mm. these experiences okay. were very you know, real yeah. and they weren't particularly rare. Mm. So... You know, what was the impact of this kind of sexually repressed kind of influence of the church, do you think, on Welsh women? Well, yes, that, that that's basically how this identity for Welsh women has been constructed, isn't it, in mm. a way? The, um, and uh, the sense of especially chapel, but also just Christian um, religious um, people being very repressive, being very dour and serious and this kind of thing. And yes, it's not just attitudes to, to sex, but attitudes to alcohol and all this kind of thing as well. So I, th I think it's probably put a lot of people off faith, isn't it? Because, mm. you know, do people, do younger people believe that you can drink and, you know, swear and, I don't know, have have normal relationships with people, you know? But yeah, I mean, it's, 
Well, I guess I could talk about well, my generation then mm. is that the attitude is that I wouldn't say that necessarily it's more about individualism now. I mm. think there there are very strong community links between young people. Mm. My own experience would be kind of through activism, that mm. kind of thing. But I think in terms of religion, the idea is that people don't want kind of their morality then set for them. Mm. People take a lot of pride in kind of working out their morality mm. for themselves. I mean, do you think the church has kind of responded to that kind of growing, I don't want to call it individualism mm. because it's more a cultural shift. Mm. But I mean, do you think that that's a change that's taken place? The church hasn't adapted to it at all, has it? So, no. um, I, you know, I think I think that's one of the challenges I would have at the end of the book, or have at the end of the book really, is is how to... Okay, so perhaps my generation will put up with with the way churches are um, and the culture, but the other generations below us, I don't think, will. So, uh, as you say, it's not about not being ethical, is it? Because you have strong moral and ethical beliefs, but it's not to do with it. Well, it's to do with, isn't it, human flourishing and helping people rather than, you know, what you can't do. I suppose the church, the church and Wells, still teaches that you shouldn't have sex outside marriage, yeah. which I actually th- personally think we should be far more positive and we should teach about the the importance of of having good relationships with people, about the importance of having non-abusive relationships, all that kind of thing. And I don't think that we can earn the right to talk about relationships and love if we, we've got this blanket rule about no sex outside marriage, which, you know... It's not realistic, I don't think, no. to to teach. So again, you know, I'm a bit like my participants. So my own personal, how I would run my family and how I would respond to my daughters, you know, and their relationships, um, is different from from the the official teaching of the church. But but I think it is it is difficult because the official teaching of the church and what people actually think are two different things. Um, you know, even me, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm. Uh, you know, I'm ordained and a priest. But I think we have to deal with the society as it is. And I think we've got an important voice because, you know, I, I worry about younger people and how, you know, my daughter's friends, perhaps how they're treated by boyfriends, you know, and they, um, I think there's a lot of pressure on young people, you know, with, with looks and all that kind of thing. And if we're going to be a resource, if Christianity is going to be a resource to people to help them negotiate their relationships, then we have to do that in a realistic way rather than closing our eyes and ears and saying, no, no, you shouldn't be doing any of it. Mm. You know, it's totally unrealistic. Yeah, I guess, well, the second feminist wave, so sexual liberation then, you know, that was 60s, so over 50 years ago. (laughs) That happened now. The church hasn't quite kind of... I mean, I guess that kind of failure then to modernise, I'm not saying it's a complete failure to modernise. I'm sure, you know, there are individuals and groups working within the church who definitely have. Do you think a lot of that comes down to how relatively male-dominated the church still is in terms of the people having the most senior positions remain to be men? Or is that not the experience, do you think? Yeah, no, I think you're right. And and you could also argue that, that uh, you know, sex and relationships and marriage is one area of control that the church has historically had. And yes, I, I suppose I kind of say this in the book. I think 
I talk about, you know, we have to move away from this care and control business that, that, you know, the church is there. And I mean the church as a whole. I don't mean particularly denomination, but the church is there to kind of patronize people and to keep them in their place and, you know, yes, help them when they're in need, but, but not treat them as equals and to control, place controls on how, how they behave. So that if the church then, ha- the church then will have power over people's lives. And I don't think that that was the faith that Jesus came to bring at all. You know, it's the opposite of that. So yes, I, th- I think um, I think you have to be critical of of how the church, as institutions, how they've exercised control over people's lives. And turkeys are not going to vote for Christmas, are they? No. If you take away that, if you take away, I, I, I don't think people are doing this consciously, but but if you're taking away a theology that actually says, you know, no to this, no to that, then that diminishes the power of the church. And again, this is what I argue, the church should not be a powerful institution. You know, if, we, if we've learned anything about the life of Jesus Christ, yes, he, he wasn't somebody who was powerful. He was executed by the state, you know, so, so it's power and weakness in a, in a way. So, so I do argue against established Christian. Well, even though the established Christianity pays my wages, yeah. so <laughs> be careful. Like. Yeah, I can't be too, I can't be too crit- critical. But but yes, I, th- I think I think the the den- different denominations, the institutions, we need to look at all that because I think it's off-putting to people now that kind yeah. of institutional Christianity. Well, I guess to finish off, then in an ideal world, if I could grant you that power. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you like to see change within the church to kind of bring it up to speed then and mm. to make it a more welcoming place for women, both as um, studies of theology and, you know, mm. practicing, say, priests, but also women, you know, who attend church and chapel? Well, well, I think in, in the book, and this is what I think, I, I, I talk about how, you know, there are practices that have shamed women in the past and teaching that has shamed women and so it's a kind of a two-pronged approach really I think we really need to look at the theology of it all and to and to really develop theologies which are inclusive and which are more affirming and help people flourish rather than telling people that they can't do this that the other and that you know that they're not good enough because I don't think Christianity teaches that but we've taught that but also I'd say that even just every day church life it's about well it's about you know the institutions being humble i think and not seeking to control people but every day you know if you're walking into a church that you feel welcomed that the churches are actually getting involved in communities you know a lot are but getting involved in communities and serving their communities and it's through those sorts of things that i think the people would be attracted to church you know if you can see a different if you're in your village or your town or your your city, you see the church is actually getting stuck in and doing some good, then people are more likely to be attracted to them. So that's what I would want, really, is both a top-down and a bottom-up approach. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks very much, Manon. As is tradition, is there any shout-outs you'd like to give to anyone or conversely start any beefs with anyone? No, I'm not going to start any beefs. Start a beef with the Pope? (laughs) 
<laughs> no, no, I like the perp. I think it's great. <laughs> um, uh, I think the two shout-outs I'd like to give is to Christine Kinsey, who designed the cover of my book, mm. and she's a fantastic artist. It's a beautiful cover. Yeah, yeah. Really I love the cover, yeah. Um, and uh, also to Mena Elvin, whose poetry is in the book, and, um, you know, who let me print her poem, uh, Will the Ladies Stay Behind, which is a fantastic poem, completely, very generously, so... Um, Shout out to those two women who are, you know, a generation above me again, but who've shown the way to people like me. Yeah, brilliant. Good stuff. Okay, thanks so much, Manon, for joining us. Pleasure. And see you soon, maybe. Yeah. Who Thank knows? You. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, and when? where can people buy uh, the book? Um, they can uh, buy it in all the usual places. Um, um, Car boot sales, like... Yeah. Uh, not well maybe in a couple of years hopefully yeah. not yet <laughs> but through all good bookshops you know they can get it through a bookshop order through a bookshop or online the all the usual retailers online amazon then yeah just go by amazon it's cheaper yeah. on amazon but you know i know that ethically <laughs> is is there any ethical company in capitalism no <laughs> just roll with the worst like there know. we are okay so thanks so much manon thank you pleasure, pleasure. thank you thanks so much manon that was brilliant so nice. Any shout outs this week? Do you want to do your shout outs first to kind of, you know, oh, christen your what, first step? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's do that. So my shout outs this week go to my nan. He'll be listening. Love you, nan. Uh, Max, Ben, uh, Jamie Evans as well. My favorite boy. Um, I don't think I have any beefs this week. Oh, you know, what, actually, yeah, I'd like to start a beef with men. Grow up. All men grow up. Knock it off. Yeah. Just stop it now. Yeah. Please. <laughs> My shout-outs are to um, a video game called What Remains of Edith Finch, which is really good. Although, uh, it is only about an hour and a half long. So, didn't really spot the ending, just spot the kind of, you know, runtime of it. But it's really good in terms of, like, as as a video game narrative, it's really interesting. I also want to give out... Well, actually, so, just to preface this, normally... When it comes to shout-out time, I can't think of anyone. So throughout this week, I've been writing out all the shout-outs I want to give. So I was like, I also want to give a shout-out to all the apes in the Planet of the Apes. I think, you know, you're doing a stand-up job of keeping up an ape society, mm-hmm. especially Dr. Zayas, who really knew that yeah. uh, the truth of the Planet of the Apes was worth um, keeping secret, mm-hmm. just in case the Planet of the Apes went the same way as Earth, which the, is the same yeah. planet. Probably the Spoiler. greatest, greatest anti-imperialist trilogy of all time basically yeah i mean actually actually you say that i will go into a bit of plant the apes history yes please so first plant the apes you know the one with charlton heston mm-hmm. boom it was earth all along mm-hmm. so the they were always like they were b movies but they kind of you know they got uh, the budget got less and less as the series continued so it just got ridiculous to the point where they just got like ultra violent so and the fourth in the fourth one of the Planet of the Apes, which I think was called uh, first one's Planet of the Apes, second one's Beneath the Planet of the Apes, third one is Escape from the Planet of the Apes. I think the fourth one might be Conquest of the Planet Planet of the Apes. That would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. So the fourth one, um, one of the apes actually leads a pro uh, proletariat. How do you say it? Proletariat. A proletariat revolution no against way. man. Yeah. <laughs> But they had to cut the ending. So at the ending, when he's given his kind of like speech about how they're going to usher in a new, um, a new society, it keeps it keeps really weirdly zooming in into his eyes because the the dialogue when recording didn't match the dialogue that ended up in the film. And I will also say the new trilogy of Planet of the Apes is absolutely stunning it's as well. Brilliant, so good. Yeah, yeah, go watch it, everyone. And I'd also like to give 
shout out to Henry Winkler, who played the Fonz. I think he's just awesome. seems like a lovely dude. And a shout out to all the sea monsters. All of them. I wish there were more sea monsters. Yeah. And they did exist to just make the world more, more magical. Have you seen all fish? Uh, giant like 10 meter long silver fish oh yeah, like, get washed yeah. Up sometimes yeah it's kind of close i really like giant squids as well yeah they're cool yeah uh, my beef is big beef this time everyone just cease using the word gammon it's mm. not an insult it's not anything it's just something some dickhead made up on twitter to call like daily mail readers that's it there's no kind of dialectic behind it there's no, no kind of you know deep reasoning yeah. so this is what happens on twitter Somebody will start something stupid. It will get a bit of out, out of hand because most journalists are really lazy. They'll just mm-hmm. write an article about what's happened on Twitter and then it gets kind of circulated in newspapers and then it becomes a thing. Gammon shouldn't be a thing. No. Nope. Who cares? Just call them a dog shagger mm-hmm. or something and just leave it at that. Yeah. It's the way that journalists kind of use it as a like an opportunity to like, flex their discourse skills. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm really progressive. These people calling others gammon, you know, it's, it's like anti-working class bigotry, yeah? Yeah. No, it's not. Shut up. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. and you just, like, you just guarantee there'll be like three or four articles about it in The Guardian as soon as it happens. Mm-hmm. So just everyone cease to use gammon now. Yep. Right, well, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you soon. All right, cheers, bye. Bye. The doctors want their chicken. Tell the doctors the chicken will be ready in five minutes. Son of a bitch. Whoa, whoa, what's going on with that chicken? Five more minutes. You said oh, five minutes. Do you know what's going on with this flipping chicken? The word is it'll be ready in five minutes. <laughs> I believe that when I say it. Tell me about it. Have you met the temp? Listen, sweetheart, I've not got time to shoot the shit. So why don't you and your new boyfriend carry some chicken out to my office when it comes, if it ever comes. Hey, are you alright? No, I mean, yes, I deserve that. Where's this flipping chicken? Who said that? Was it you, Missy? Get this into your pretty little face. I said five minutes. But nothing. Women like you are the reason this chicken's late in the first place. You'll be lucky if you get any of my lovely chicken if you keep up this kind of behaviour. God damn son of a bitch. Mm.